Hey guys, this is Peter Hurley from the Headshot Crew, and you are listening to the Angry Millennial Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the Angry Millennial Podcast with your host, Jose Rosado, and co-host, Stevie Chris, where we talk to creatives and entrepreneurs from all walks of life and passions about the creative lifestyle, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Be sure to check out our site, theangrymillennialshow.com, and sign up for our newsletter to be eligible for prizes and giveaways, as well as stay up to date with new shows and upcoming guests. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Borrow Lenses. Bring your vision to life with the gear you want when you need it. Don't deplete your resources by investing in gear you may only need once in a while. Instead, grow your business by using high-end gear before you can afford to own it. I know for me, for many years starting out, this is how I got the shots I needed with the glass I couldn't afford at the time. And plus, it's great for trying before you buy. With thousands of rental lenses, cameras, lighting, and all the tools to trade for hobbyists and pros alike. Get to use specialty gear such as underwater cameras or telephoto lenses for that once-in-a-lifetime adventure without a huge investment. You can choose the gear you want, tell them when you want it and for how long, and they'll ship the gear directly to you. You can book far in advance and secure all the gear you'll need. Visit borrowlenses.com and enter AM10 to redeem your exclusive 10% Angry Millennial discount. What's going on, AM Nation, and welcome to the Angry Millennial Show, where we chat with creatives and entrepreneurs about the creative lifestyle, the good, the bad, the ugly. Today, we have renowned photographer and APA National Executive Vice President Emeritus and the chair of the APA Advocacy Committee, Michael Greco. Michael, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for being here. All right. So, Michael, let's get into it. I know we've uh, we've spoken before uh, for an article I'm writing on you for Chimera, but that actually wasn't the first time you came on our radar. Uh, the first time was actually when we sat with Ron Jouts from the APA. So, you know, why don't we kind of start off there? Tell us a bit about your work with the APA and and copyright and all the advocacy things you're doing and how kind of where, kinda, where, where were we sitting with Ron Joust? Oh, we sat with him in New York in the uh, APA office in, in Manhattan. Um, gotcha. Oh, for our board meeting? Oh, no, no, no. Is we had him on the show. Oh, oh, I see. You had Ron Joust on the show. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I yeah. was thinking, was there a party I wasn't invited to? What's <laughs> going on? You sat with me and Ron Joust? Or? It was a very small party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just the two of you guys. I know that. So. <laughs> So, yeah, I got roped into, uh, well, I mean, my, my, my work in, as an advocate for photographers has been going on a long time. I was asked to join Editorial Photo when Editorial Photo was in existence. Editorial Photo is now merged into APA. Um, I was asked to join Editorial Photo and to help fight bad editorial contracts in the editorial wor- world. And I was on the board of Editorial Photo because I was a ma- big magazine shooter, shot a lot of magazine work. And then over, I don't know, it's maybe been over 10 years, a while ago I was asked, 15 years ago, I was asked to be a part of APA, which is very active here in Los Angeles and in New York and mm-hmm. in the major cities. And I was on the local board and then I 
grew to become uh, a board, national board member. And, you know, advocacy is sort of my thing because I've had many, many prominent images that are ripped off all the time. Yeah. So I'm... I'm the chair of the advocacy committee and I uh, was an executive vice president. I'm much too politically incorrect to be the president. <laughs> <laughs> so they figure I could be right, sit right next to the president and not be the president. Right. So yeah. <laughs> I pissed way too many people yeah, off. <laughs> yeah. The Dick Cheney of the world, I guess, right? Of the photo world. Yeah, well, yeah, that's I mean, kind of harsh. Yeah, that's really harsh. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think of myself as the Ralph Nader of the photo. <laughs> there you go. There you, there you go. <laughs> Not the Dick Cheney. <laughs> I mean, Ralph Nader p- pissed off people, and by trying to do right, Dick Cheney pissed off people because he was an idiot. So, <laughs> so I, I know that's, you. That's good. You mentioned that me being Super Tuesday, and also we're right on <laughs> right on track. <laughs> so I know you you mentioned. Uh, fighting for unfair practices. I mean, one thing that I, I'm sure you've heard of recently was like the Taylor Swift uh, contract. Like, I think from Sony that was kind of put online that basically said that anyone who, who shot at one of her concerts uh, didn't have any rights to the photos to kind of make any profit off of them. It was a very ironclad type type thing that a lot of um, music photographers had said wasn't necessarily the norm. Uh, and it, she came under fire when when she spoke out about Spotify and how she didn't want her music on there for the way they were unfair treatment of artists. Um, and then people kind of fired back and said, well, if that's the case, then how come you have this crazy contract um, where people can't actually make any money off of, you know, shooting your your uh, performances? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's the typical it's the typical what's good for the goose should be good for the gander so to speak and right. and but it but it's not it's it's i mean we're all in business right and we all need to a take care of ourselves and both from the perspective of you know she wants rights to those images so they don't have to pay pay extra or get have a copyright lawsuit and at the same time she wants to get paid well and the the problem is in in this country in general is that uh, artists aren't protected and the internet era has sort of exploded to the point where the internet machine wants content and they want content at all costs whether whether it's people's rights are getting abused or not Mm -hmm. and you know, somebody's got to step in and say, you know what? No, use on Google Images feeds the Google machine where they can, you know, generate revenue through ad ad usage. But it, people are we're supplying content, and not getting paid for it. I mean, I mean that's basically what she said to Spotify. It's like right. I'm getting paid a penny a song; it ain't worth it. It's not worth it. So. You know, she was able to say that because she has power. Right. You know, this is the problem here is individual photographers don't have the same power. And yeah. somebody needs to do something about it from a legislative perspective. And that's what we're mm-hmm. working on at APA. That's what I'm, I'm leading the legislative initiative. In fact, I wouldn't say there would have been no legislative initiative, but you know, Maria Palante, the new registrar, came into uh, the copyright office as the registrar of copyrights, um, which is the head of the office, 
wanting to revolutionize and modernize copyright law, but myself as an individual two years ago, two and a half years ago, actually organized all the trade organizations to come to her and, and voice our needs. So, I, I mean, I'm the spearhead of this, uh, of this initiative trying to, trying to get photographers' rights protected. Right, right. Yeah. And I know, let's, let's start, talk about how you started out. Um, I know you went to Boston University where you got your first gig as a photojournalist for AP. Uh, then you went on to work as you know a staffer for the Boston Herald. Um, so what what kind of made you want to become a photojournalist that early on? I you know what I just loved photography. I, I learned photography in a summer camp, and I loved the darkroom. And I would print. And in high school, I would take pictures of my friends. And I and I just loved photography. And and taking my first class, it wasn't a fine art class; it was a photojournalism class. And it just it was a way that like wow, I could do this in college. Um, I think a couple of things that attracted me to it though also was this idea of seeing the world, like right. being out there. Yeah. yeah. Covering news events, experiencing life in a way that I didn't growing up in suburban New York City. So I, I came from a very old, old world Italian family. My mother was extremely protective, mm-hmm. and it, you know I differentiated, broke free by you know making my way into New York City, uh, you know on a regular basis on the weekends, going to the Museum of Modern Art, and being a photojournalist was like, okay, uh, you're going to go to the State House today, and you're going to hang out with the governor. He has two press conferences, and it's like, cool. All right, now we have a anti-nuclear protest this weekend at the Seabrook nuclear uh, facility. Um, you're coming up with the team to cover that. It's like, cool. Sounds like fun. <laughs> nice, nice. Love to get maced in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I can I can applaud that because I mean, let's let's be honest. I know a lot of us when working our way through college. Uh, yeah, you might do some portraits and stuff like that, but to say you're gonna be working as a photojournalist is uh is pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, I it was the middle of sophomore year, and I and then dropped out of school for a year. So uh, you know, I was I was working. I dropped out. I did finish, um, and it was actually very very hard to go back. But um, it was very hard to go back. But uh, but uh, you know, I did it. I wanted my degree, but it was uh, I was working at that point. So right, right, nice. So I know that the natural, the kind of love of storytelling naturally led you to editorial work, um, most notably with, you know, People Magazine. Um, and after that transition, you kind of really haven't looked back, you know. Uh, so I know that a lot of times what you would seem is like harrowing or tough jobs to cover as a photojournalist is a much different animal than editorial um, but what do you think is like your most trying job you've had with editorial clients that it kind of tested your previous experience all at once? You know, your your ability to be put in these dangerous situations and now they're less dangerous, but maybe more so the level of intensity is a little bit higher. Well, in Hollywood, they're always politically dangerous. <laughs> so <laughs> in Hollywood, you know, especially when you're doing a TV show with like lots of talent where there's like four or five you know, an ensemble cast, they all have a publicist, 
the studio has a publicist and the production company has a publicist, yeah. you're in a political minefield. But right. I, I, you know, I newspaper work and magazine work are both editorial. Like I came from editorial. I mean, newspaper work is just it's just different. It's it's a different type of editorial storytelling. Right. It's more literal. It's more it's more um, concrete. And then when you go, what I did was actually. And then for People Magazine, I was actually still a photojournalist. I, we you know we talk about difficult stories. One of the most difficult stories for me was photographing this woman, Mary Vincent. At, at, at me still as a photojournalist working for People Magazine. I just moved out here. They offered me a job. I left the Herald. I moved because of People Magazine. And um, in fact, I was offered a newspaper job here that I was able to turn down because because People Magazine asked me to contribute to the magazine regularly. Yeah. Um, so, so I, you know, I've done these very, very difficult uh, journalistic sh- uh, shoots like Mary Vincent, who was this woman who was abducted. She was hitchhiking to go to her grandfather's to be there at his birthday. She was abducted, and this guy left her for dead, cutting off her arms and legs. Wow. And wow. then Lin- Lindsay Wagner, the bionic woman who was on the TV show at the time, the bionic woman decided to help her. You know, they got her prosthetics. She She became pregnant. They got her prosthetics, and she was leading a life you know, she learned to live, lead a life with her prosthetics raising a child. Wow. So I'm photographing, you know, Mary Vincent on the beach in Malibu in situations like that that are, that are just emotionally tough. Yeah. You know, and then it goes from being tough in another way, like just being politically challenged, making sure everyone's happy on a set. But But those shoots go from literal storytelling about something that happened to someone's life to creating sort of a fantasy that tells the story of some actor and their new movie they're doing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's storytelling and it it sounds it sounds when when I say it like that it sounds less significant but it's more creative to me. So right. I, I it is less significant in a way like, you know, uh um you know, Esquire, Esquire writing about men's fashion doesn't have the same cultural significance as, you know, learning about uh, corruption and a, a problem with our government in, in the newspaper. Right. But, but at the same time, from an artistic standpoint, that magazine worked to me because I had so much freedom and can do so many different things yeah. uh, was much more creative. Yeah. So speaking of, I know you were at the the Herald. I don't know timeline wise, but I'll ask you. Uh, the Oscars were the other day, um, and I've recently watched that movie Spotlight, and it was about the Boston Globe story. Were you uh, around? Were you around in that time? Oh yeah. Well, I wasn't around. I wasn't there for the Catholic priest story that they right. did. But my, I lived with my my ex girlfriend, Mary Ellen Malone. Emmy Malone was one of the four member Spotlight team. So oh wow. Oh, wow. Um, um uh Ben Bradley Jr. or or Bren, Ben Bradley the third, I forget, was Ben Bradley from the Washington Post. He was on the spotlight team at the time. And 
a gentleman named Tom Knott and M.E. and uh, I forget their editor, Steve. But this was, you know, this was the '80s, and uh, they had they they won. The, that Spotlight team has won so many Pulitzers. The Herald has won five or six Pulitzers for photography, mm-hmm. more Pulitzers than any newspaper, wow. and the Globe has won. You know, at the time, that Spotlight team, that investigative uh, reporting team, mm-hmm. had won more Pulitzers in investigative journalism. And it was funny. So she'd, we'd go home and we're in bed and it was like, so what are you guys working on? It's like, <laughs> I don't know. What are you guys working on? Yeah. <laughs> the reporters would be all be like, what's Mary Ellen working on? It's like. Mm, don't know. <laughs> of course, I knew everything about it. It was like, right. and then and then she would be like, um, that Joe Shaka, that that investigative reporter. What's he working on? Don't know. <laughs> it's kind how of like, you, how do you feel that world's changed? Like being around in that era compared to now, with you know the technology and you know everyone has a camera. Do you think that investigative journalism and that kind of mindset or that kind of Sincerity is that I don't know is that the word that would get associated you know, with that? But I mean, everything's been diluted. Like yeah. people, people had to buy the New York Times every day. You yeah. know, the Street Journal. The yeah, people are getting their news from the Huffington Post every day. You know, right. yeah. and it's like you know everything's been diluted, and and with that comes for me like a, a good a good newspaper story everything that gets attributed twice, right? You have to, you don't get a piece of information. You have to verify it. You have to have someone else say it. You know, there's certain checks and balances, you know, journalism back then was considered the fourth, uh, the fourth, uh, uh, department of government. What would it be called? Bureau, the, the fourth, um, uh, part of government. It, it kept, it kept everyone straight, right? Right. Now, Now with the internet, with with people like um, who is that that guy that I photographed uh, that's passed away, uh, the radical Republican that re-edited that that footage of the the black woman from housing to say something she didn't say, and because he oh, was wow. able to just re-edit it. Um, what was that guy's name? Um, um, but it, there's no. There's no attribution. There's no. Right. Yeah. There's no. Anyone can have a website, and anyone can say anything they want. I think that right. that part of it is a shame. So, like you said, it's diluted. It feels like almost like there's less heart and you know less integrity behind it. Which I mean, look, I feel like that's a that's a given when you right. look at. Let's be honest. You have CNN <laughs> reporting about the Kardashians. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's diluted. In, it's diluted in that you have so many places to go. Right. And yeah. and that there is no. There is no um, protection, or, or yeah, it's harder. It's harder to understand or know what's more legitimate with exactly investigative photojournalism, journalism, anything really. Right. Nice. I mean, I guess that's why I gave it all up and screw it. Yeah. I just yeah. my own fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you're you're not going to see a like an Oscar winning movie ten years from now about like a Huffington Post article or a Gawker Atlantic article. <laughs> Unless it's like a Sharknado thing, but you know, Sharknado. Nice. <laughs> <Let's be real. laughs> so, uh, Michael, I know that it's no popularity contest, but 
we know as photographers, much like film directors, you get into this nice working rapport with certain people and naturally you'll, you'll work together a lot throughout your career. Um, who would you say is like one of your favorite celebrities that you've been able to, to work with? Well, I, I mean, I've, I, I have had a long-standing relationship with someone like Danica McKellar, who I've done all of her math books, um, hung out with, and you know, her and her then husband were have gone to my openings and events, and you know, those those relationships aren't um, for me common. I have kids, uh, you know, I I have. Um, I have kids. I have, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't travel in the world of, you know, a 30 year old celebrity, but at the same time, I'm, I'm, you know, I network, I'm at a lot. I tend to do a lot of think tanks mm-hmm. and, um, I, I'm part of a couple of like, exclusive organizations that are like where business is going and where the future is going and you know something called uh, metal and uh, go to these big bang forums put on by uh, an attorney Ken Hertz I know that that's like a little more exclusive uh uh TEDx um he did the TEDx Hollywood events and so nice. I, you know I spend my time networking in in those places and 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 with that stuff and but i'm always friendly always are caring always you know uh give talent the attention and time that it needs and if it turns into something else it you know it turns into something else but i think they all have lives and kids and we travel in a different economic class if you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah different tax bracket (laughs) did you watch I'm just catching up on the Oscars. Chris Rock did such a phenomenal job yeah. on the Oscars. Like he really he, did. He they they took the controversy and he shoved it in your face so well. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah they great. didn't discuss that those Girl Scout cookies are really bad for you though. Nice <laughs> There's hydrogenated cottonseed oil in those suckers, I believe. So, so I mean, they're peddling. They're peddling Girl Scout cookies. I don't think that that was a healthy thing to do. So right, right, right. That that was great though. I loved I love seeing him just go off the cuff and start calling people out, especially oh, I think when God. he called Leo out. Like, come on, Leo! He you said, made thirty million last year. Like, he, he and he said something about you know the, 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 what did he what joke did he say about? Oh no, it was um, who was the actor that came out and joked about. Uh, Best documentary short, and was like, "You guys are all going home." Oh, Louis C.K. Louis C.K. Yeah, that, that was, was brilliant. <laughs> that was brilliant. So you guys are all going home in your, you know, in your limos, and the guy who wins this tonight drove up here in a Chevette. <laughs> He's driving back in a Chevette. <laughs> he didn't do this for the money. Come yeah. on, it's the best documentary short. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's so, awesome. It was total Louis C.K. fashion. It was amazing. <laughs> I felt bad for the woman who won it after that. Yeah, it's kind of awesome. Like he made so much fun of her, not her specifically, but right. Well, so speaking of celebrities, um, I know recently you shot Will Smith for a Sports Illustrated cover for the film Concussion, uh, that you know shines light on the whole NFL CTE scandal and that kind of thing. Um, you know, so what was it like? I know you mentioned it earlier, 
with uh, with the the shoot you did with the woman you know, with the quadriplegic. But what was it like to work with Will again on such a controversial topic? Did like did that make the shoot take on a more special meaning to you? No, I you know I I so I I know our, your wonderful audience is a, a lot of a lot of the audience are new photographers and people who are really you know love photography and see mm-hmm. a shoot like that. Yeah. It's like you you just get. You get skilled you, after doing this for so many years. You you know done this over thirty years. It's like you just get skilled, and and it's like I the adrenaline runs when for me uh, in a big set with a with an important subject with images that you know are going to get seen well, and I think that um, I I think that you know I I've found my center there that it's not nerve-wracking it's not mm-hmm. you know you have an idea of what you're going to do and you just stick with that vision i mean uh, it, uh the director of photography at sports illustrated i was explaining what to do and he was like i don't understand why would you do two setups why shoot on white <laughs> why do this and then they got the pictures and they're like oh my god this is like the best shoot we've ever done <laughs> so so it's like you you almost have to like be true to, you have to find this balance of of like being calm taking care of talent that was the second time i shot with will the first experience wasn't very good actually i i it was a many years ago he had just done independence day the magazine wanted him in a wet white uh dress shirt so that his muscles you know he went from being the skinny fresh prince right, right. to the skinny fresh prince this muscular action hero in independence day so they yeah. wanted him on the cover with a wet shirt in black and white this beautiful black and white portrait and he's like i ain't doing any of that faggy annie Leibovitz <laughs> stuff he tells me <laughs> wow I'm not doing any of that faggy Le- annie Leibovitz stuff and i pushed him all day to try to get that because i saw the picture in my mind right. and it, it was it was a little bit uncomfortable and now like you know 15 years 20 years later we're joking about it on set it's like <laughs> you know it just it takes it takes a level of self-confidence and know that you're going to make it work he's a gentleman he's an amazing guy so we we turned it into a joke and a and a, and a past experience he got into his character this nigerian doctor who discovered mm-hmm. the pathologist who discovered the the brain trauma uh um connection to uh, concussions yeah um and he he was just amazing he he was amazing mm-hmm. and it's like you know we're we're on it it's like it's a i i run my shoots not only are they a creative process but they're a logistical um you know there's logistical considerations and they're run like you're you're watching your watch so it's like okay between you know i have two hours two setups, two lighting changes in each setup. So I've got approximately 20 minutes in each. He gets a 10-minute break in each. It's like, and you're, you're on the clock. You're pacing yourself. You're not screwing yeah. around, you know? Right. You, I make my decisions on whether I'm shooting with a medium format camera or a DSLR equivalent, you know, based on, you know, based on the pressure, how many assistants, how many, you know, we, and we had two hours with him that day. So probably um, more than you usually get, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a significant, it was a significant thing. I, I mean, I've done magazine covers in three minutes. I, I remember, wow. <laughs> uh, I remember doing a Dodger cover when, um, before Esquire bought this magazine M 
There were two, a couple of men's magazines. One was this magazine M, The Civilized Man. It was a Fairchild publication. I did a cover for them. And um, uh, I had to get the Dodgers going off the field as the next team was going on the field. Mm. And I literally had three minutes. And and you just, you, you're like, everything's staged. We had apple boxes and we knew where the heights and we had body doubles. And it's like, you, you just put into place what you need to be successful really right. so yes. if will smith needed eight assistants to get that done we would have i would have asked for eight assistants yeah you know? right right but but it, it was a you know two assistant shoot digital tech myself big set he wanted a he wanted a studio he could pull his car into <laughs> nice. <Wow. laughs> yeah i saw the video of that shoot and it was it was i remember thinking that it was a very large studio yeah, we didn't shoot studio that big, but he wanted to pull his car in. So I brought yeah. my Triumph motorcycle nice. with the really loud pipes, and I made it like leaving. <laughs> I was <laughs> That's awesome. And nice. all the crew were like, whoa, cool bike. I figured I had to make a little. <laughs> do, you find, do you find a difference working with older celebrities compared to newer, you know, up and coming? Almost like, I, I think it was Patrick Hollick was talking about how there's just a, such a drastic, you know, difference in professionalism. I guess I, saying I, that I would I would agree with that. Someone yeah. someone who's been up, down, and weathered, and had bad PR moments, just like the rest of us. Like, yeah, I I, I might have been a terror to work with twenty five, thirty years ago. Not a terror, but but maybe more defensive and not as yeah. good listener and. Right. Uh, a little more cocky and, and and but then you then you live life and then you've had yeah. good moments and bad moments and and you've had heartache and you've had successes and it's like i think that's the same thing with talent i mean the the talent that's been really really tough for me except for people who are like really known to be crazy the the um Charlie uh, Sheen types or No, Rip Torn, Rip Torn was very very <laughs> difficult. Um, really? Uh, oh, I, no, I, Charlie Sheen and I would get along splendidly. <laughs> we have a I friend heard, I heard Alec Baldwin. I wrote a show. Um, my friend Eddie Gordetsky, we would get along splendidly, Charlie Sheen and I. I <laughs> hey, look, I did a book on the adult industry. He right yeah, then that's and true. I'd give him one, we would be bonded, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer's known to be difficult. But, but you'll work on a show, and, and sometimes it is the actor or actress who thinks now – they're going to be famous from this one show. Right. Yeah. And the show goes four episodes and, you know, <laughs> and then they have to learn that their ego and their difficulty level didn't need to be up here. Cause the next time someone wants to hire them, they realize how difficult they were because they thought now they were going to be a yeah. great big celebrity. Yeah. Right. So, so, so yeah, I, I would agree with Patrick on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you're not the first photographer turned author we've had on the show. Uh, we mentioned Peter Hurley earlier. He was the last guest we've had in that right. Um, what was the process like for you in terms of, of writing those Peter books? Peter didn't write anything. He did a video. <laughs> how, how do you know the man can write? I love Peter. I've never seen him write. He's he, a good told, he told us. He told us it was like a two and a half year process of going through stuff the revisions of, of doing that book because it was that hard for him. Yeah, I, I, he, I, he wrote a book. I thought he just did the video. No, the the Peter Hurley the headshot. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, there you go. Book. It yeah. took me about two years. Also, I, I mean, 
We do that not because I, we do that to position ourselves as the expert in our field. It's like right. PDN did a lighting master's article on me in 93, and I was wow. one of their lighting master features back in 93. And then I started doing a, a series of talks I in 94. After that article, I was asked to speak at the Photo Plus Expo in New York. Mm-hmm. used to be called Photo Plus East because they used to have a Photo Plus West. Mm-hmm. Um, but Photo District News PDN asked me to speak and do a lecture. And I've been doing that lecture there since 1994. Wow. Um, this will be my 20-some-odd year doing that. And that went from there. That was a very popular lecture. At that, and from there, we went on to uh, having book offers. So it, right, yes. it, the first variation of that was the art of portrait photography with a publisher. Mm-hmm. Amherst hated the publisher, didn't like the quality <laughs> of the book. I'm right. speaking frankly today, right? No, so, no, but that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, that's what I ask a lot of people because nowadays we, we've had – authors on who've done both who've done the traditional route and more of the self-publishing route you can go through today well, the sec- yeah the second one wasn't self-publishing then I, I i had such an ill experience working with amherst and this guy craig whatever his name is uh and and trust me i've i've recommended people when asked that that they find people find another publisher had such a tough experience with him that mm-hmm. when watson guptill asked me to do the book which was actually owned by the company that owned PDN. I forget how it worked, whether it was Variety mm-hmm. or Billboard. Billboard owned Watson Guptill Publishing and also owned PDN. When they asked me to do the book, I let my contract expire, <clears throat> let my contract expire and did it with them. And I revised it and it was color and and you know, I felt like I was in the 1940s doing a black and white book. But it's like, what do you mean a duotone? Yeah. They have they have four and five colors here. <laughs> so, so we did that. That became Lighting in the Dramatic Portrait. So, right. and that was a yeah. best selling book. And that you know that positioned me. You know, after the Lighting Masters article, after the first book, and with that book, that positioned me as someone who who can light. So, right. and I love light. So. so you so you were at Photo Plus last year speaking. I have done the lighting and the traumatic portrait um, seminar f- ninety four, ninety five, will be twenty three years. Wow! Oh, cause, uh, we were That's there last great. year. That's where we launched the show. Yeah. Uh, we didn't we didn't actually run into you then. Would have been great to know. I uh, yeah. Down, we'll see down, you this October. That other side. <laughs> yeah. Actually, speaking speaking of books and everything, I just want to backtrack a little bit. How did how did Naked Ambition come about? Was that just an idea you had, or because I actually have a copy that I bought a while ago. Good man. Yeah. Good man. You know what? Nice. It's actually it's actually has your signature in it. It was off Amazon, so it just came like that. So thank you. Nice. <laughs> so normally normally I sign. Dear eBay bitter. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 my wife at the time was in the television industry and Playboy used to do the red carpet show to the adult video awards. So we were invited by the president of Playboy TV to come and come to this event. And 
I thought I was in a Fellini movie. Like it was just, <laughs> you know, straight performer of the year, gay performer of the year, transsexual performer of the year, girl on girl scene. Like, you know, it was just like it, it, the way people dressed and the way, and I thought, all right, yeah. you know, maybe this would, would make a cool <laughs> project, you know, photo booth there, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it wound up, that was in 2002. Um, I pitched the idea for a while, mm-hmm. um, looking for a sponsor. Then I got a call, uh, unbeknownst to me and unconnected. I had Bill Stockland, uh, the agent, call me and ask if I would help Timothy Greenfield Sanders, the photographer. And Timothy yeah. calls me up, and I'm explaining to him copyright registration. You know, there are things I'm known for. You know, advocacy, yeah. copyright registration, my lighting, uh, my portraits. Um, so he asked if I would help. Um, Tim and Tim and I have this long conversation about the mechanics of how he should register this work. And then I said, what's your book about? He goes, well, I did a book of portraits of porn stars and my heart sank. And I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) Oh, two years, three years, haven't found a sponsor for the book. And now someone's done it. But out of that, I was invited to his gallery opening here. Mm -hmm. And out of that, um, one of the adult networks I met, gave a card, guy loved my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, guy loved my work, and they wound up sponsoring my book. So, yeah, which nice. became, awesome. you know, uh, which became the documentary feature film that Warner Brothers released. Also, so yeah. how I, how is it working with actors and actresses in that industry opposed to you know like the typical Hollywood? I remember I th- I think it was like YouTube or something a while ago. I it was like a behind the scenes thing, and I I forget who it was. It was like I said, it was a while ago, but I remember seeing you having some difficulty trying to get one of the guys to pose. Oh yeah. The, the, you know, it's very funny because every once in a while I'll be on the phone or doing a business deal or doing something uh-huh. with someone who knows the movie and, and they're, everyone's big takeaway is Lee Stone. Lee Stone, I think his name is. Have a name like stone. In the <laughs> <laughs> Lee Stone. <laughs> Lee Stone. <laughs> As has is talking about, you know, that he doesn't want his he's not getting paid to be shot. I said, Well, this is an art project, and we have this argument, and he doesn't allow me to yeah. photograph him. So uh, that's everyone's takeaway of that movie. Like it's it's pretty interesting. So well that, that and I think I think Larry Flint, that seeing that was pretty cool to watch you watch you do. But it's nice. uh we're 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 finishing plans now, you know. That's why I love these networking events, right? Mm-hmm. So you network with the guy who's a big entertainment attorney, Ken Hertz, you know. And I say this out there to less as a lesson to photographers, right? That you go out and you take yourself and not be a photographer. You, you don't want to look at yourself as a plumber. Photographer, you can either be a plumber or an entrepreneur, right? Mm-hmm. As a plumber, you give away your copyright. You don't defend your copyright. You don't license your images. You don't use the fact that you hold the copyright and use it as a license and restrict what people can do and get paid again. To so, as yeah. a plumber, you go and fix a broken toilet. That if you act that way as a photographer, you're a plumber. You're fixing mm-hmm. the broken toilet. I don't do business that way. I come up with ideas and projects that I own. I license the, my use and try to and try to get 
paid for a secondary license. Right. I um, protect my copyright and defend it and go after people who steal it and but, so that they can't make uh, – they can't – I mean basically people who steal it on the internet are making a business model using your work. Right. Yeah. yeah. I you actually know, had to send two emails out this morning about that. It, um, it was for a client. It was beauty stuff. And then a, I'm not going to you know name the names, but a really big color company, they got the shot and started using it on social media. So no, wait, I, this, so, so, so let me back up though. Okay. Did you, yeah. Did you register the work? Not yet. <laughs> when did you shoot it? <laughs> a few weeks ago. So you have a 90-day window. You okay. have to register the work. You have to register the work. I'll be at the Palm Springs Photo Festival, by the way. I'll mm. be at the Palm Springs Photo Festival do, doing a two-hour seminar on copyright. You have to awesome. register the work before it's infringed or within 90 days of publication. So you yeah. have a 90-day window. I wouldn't send them a letter. Have your lawyer go after them. <laughs> so so anyway, what you know, like this idea of not being a plumber and being sort of a business person or an entrepreneur, like I go to these events, you mm-hmm. know, these forums and these think tanks and, and where I met the guy, Ken Hertz, and, and his firm is negotiating another documentary. I'm working on a documentary called Punk Invasion right now, which we're looking at potentially a four to, potentially a four to six part television component and an international theatrical release. Awesome. So it's and, and all from putting together like knowing people from traveling to a festival in France and knowing people at the at the theatrical production company and yeah. uh, and then have working here and selling images for the Chris Farley doc and knowing the network production company and putting these things together and having the right <laughs> attorney negotiated it that's the way photographers should be thinking yeah not not as as strategic business people not as plumbers cuz yeah. plumbers plumbers when you start stop working you have no income mm-hmm. right yeah it's all about having some sort of passive income or something yeah. else that you can rely on yeah i mean vincent uh vincent laferay who's a good friend of mine he you know we he said this and i read this i read the rich dad poor dad book 10 or 15 years ago and he he cites the same thing as um as something that's changed his perspective of how he looks at investing, money, business, all of that. So, there's a is yeah. are there any any sources where we could have people go to find networking events and business events like that? That would be something good to try and find some you know links for people to check out. Well, I I think a, APA is like got to be the best. Yeah. You know, APA has got to be the best. The the thing I warn about those type of networking events, you're going to learn a particular thing. You're going to get insight and information from other photographers. Yeah. So you'll find out how they do business, how they run business, how they license work, how they... And that's a insular perspective, right? That's yeah. a perspective that... That's a perspective that's about this much. And it's not... Look, we have... Here's the thing. We have the ability, if everyone tells us that the internet has opened up the world... You're either in a position of putting out work and having it get ripped off mm-hmm. or you become your own media company. You either create ideas, you create, you know, the Selby. Look at look at Todd Selby and what he's created and, and the fact that he's created such a great uh, platform for his work. 
look, you know, and this is in total honesty and the same thing with, with Chase. Like, you look at photographers whose work, I'm going to say this in the most politically safe way possible, <laughs> whose, work, whose work is not so personal or s- that no one else can do. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But they stop thinking like plumbers. Todd's yeah. work is very straightforward. It's naturally lit. It's it looks like it looks like anyone else doing a lifestyle Pete's. It's just that he has a cool perspective. He finds interesting people with interesting homes. You know, and Chase too is his sports work. There's nothing but he figured out how to um he's figured out how to create a platform for himself. Both of them. Right. They've created yeah. platforms for themselves that that position themselves as media companies. And I think that photographers shouldn't be plumbers. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. Like you said, it's, it's a shift in, in your outlook and the way you approach certain things and, and the way you kind of uh, look at yourself as a business and not necessarily uh, as much as a starving artist and that kind of thing. Yeah. So speaking of, of products and, and having platforms, tell us a little bit about pro storage. I know that was something that, that uh, seems I mean, when I looked it up, honestly, I was I was thinking to myself, thinking, "Wow, that's pretty neat." And it's kind of one of those things where you go, "Oh, I should have thought of that." But <laughs> but tell, tell us more about it. Well, I I I I hope actually I have to call someone back about that today. I'm writing myself a note right now. Um, <laughs> um, um, I like. I, so in one of my business ventures, I owned a digital capture company, and and the only asset I was left with was something that we invented in the capture company, which was uh, this anti-static, basically foam block that's made to store hard drives. But what it mm-hmm. what it does with you can go to getprostorage.com and you can see the product. Um, what it does, which to me is really important, is that it's a solution for it's a solution for photographers to archive large amounts of work. So, mm. you know, we came up with this idea that the cheapest medium there is, is the hard drive that comes out of your tower. And I specifically say not the hard drive that comes out of your laptop, but the hard drive that comes out of your tower, the big three and a half inch hard drive that mm. for right now you can get a five year warranted, you know, raid version, which is meant to spin for five years without fail for 120 bucks, four terabytes. So at mm. that point, at that point, you've got the cheapest medium. And instead of buying that in an enclosure and paying for the case and the cables and figuring out how to store them and they can't be stored sequentially, they're all, and every time a hard drive manufacturer changes, uh, changes the format of the case, they can't be put in the same container on and on and on and on. You, if they're right. plugged in, they can't. So we decided that storing on a medium that's the cheapest, fastest, and most reliable medium, and at the same time, the form factor never changes to where they can be put into rows and be organized and your data can be organized, was the best way to archive. And the only way to do that, the only way to do that was to put it in something that would protect them. So we, in, we make the piece that protects them, the pro storage 
18 and 24. It stores 18 uh, hard drives and 24 hard drives. You can go mm-hmm. look at it at getprostorage.com. I mean, for me, just th- this guy I have to call back in London, he sent me a picture. They have cloud services. He sent me a picture of two metal racks in both directions with hard drives falling all over the place. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's got about 300 hard drives. I'm like, dude, you, you got a problem here. You should yeah. fix this. <laughs> I can help you. <laughs> I can help you. You should fix this. So I know, um, backtrack a little bit, I know with the with the shoot you did uh, at the AVN uh, Awards and stuff like that, is kind of, like you said, more of an art project and that kind of thing. Are there currently any kind of personal projects that you've been working on? Um, you know, and what are your thoughts on on personal projects as a, as a whole? Well, I, you know, I have many personal projects. I, I just I have a series of fine art images called uh, the Urban Landscape uh, Project, which mm-hmm. uh, as I travel, I've been traveling with panoramic, excuse me, panoramic cameras and mm-hmm. photographing. The cities, like I'll go to a shoot, it'll be after dinner, I'll have my panoramic camera with me and I'll make sure to capture some sort of, uh, you know, panoramic of where I am and the architecture. I love architecture. It's one of my huge passions. So it's a way to express that. And and a lot of these pictures are about light and shape and Mm. So they're about architecture and light, which I love. So now I'm photographing light instead of using light in the photograph. Mm -hmm. So I've got that project. And that project, like you weigh, from a business perspective, that project has had some nice gallery shows. Uh, Two of the images are in the Delta Airlines lounges. A picture of New York is in the lounge. Picture in the and thank you. A picture in the of New York is in the lounge, the premier Delta Airlines lounge in Los Angeles, and a picture of Los Angeles is in New York. And um, 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 you know, and that project has a certain amount of scope, and I put a certain amount of energy to it. It's a it's a small project. The next project, and this is what we we're talking about, like networking and finding a great business attorney, and and right. find it's this punk invasion project which will hopefully i don't want to give it a kinahara as they say i'm knocking on a piece of wood i know my yiddish because i grew up in new york um, <laughs> um, um it, it's we're looking at hopefully and i'm lining the pieces up but this is where you know this is where my business brain is you know four to six part television series uh an international doc a book i've got um can you, you know, tell us a little bit what it's about? Or it's my so when I was working for the Associated Press, mm-hmm. I during the day I'd wear my you know because it's Boston you'd have to wear there was a law in Boston you had to wear penny loafers and docksiders <laughs> and a button down shirt and if you right. don't people stare <laughs> people stare <laughs> people stare that's what happened to you in Boston if you don't wear the uniform. You got to wear the uniform. So I went right. to work. I went to work in the uniform. <laughs> and then at night, I spiked my hair and I wore boots and I was a punker and I was a club kid. And, and taking that Associated Press training and skills I learned as a photojournalist photographed the punk scene from 1978 to about 1985. Oh, that's awesome. So the documentary will be based on the documentary will be ba- and and again we haven't sold it to the network yet which is the first step you know I have this plan network 
you know, solidify the movie deal, get a book deal, lock up the galleries. I have a fashion company looking into T-shirts and doing a fashion mm-hmm. line. Like, boom, 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 boom. This is the way I think now, right? Mm-hmm. And um, um, it, it so it it it'll be based on my photography, but it'll be about punk music and how it changed culture in general. Yeah. Is it mostly based in Boston, or did well, you? Well, it'll it'll Boston. Boston has an interesting, significant. Um, um, Boston has a very interesting, significant uh, role in all of this that no one realizes. It was uh, many bands went to England first. Like Chrissy Hines was from was from the U.S., but she broke out in the U.K. So. Many bands went to England first, or they were Devo, and they were from Akron, Ohio, and played locally. But when they got their record contract, everyone started their tour in Boston. I I think Hmm. because the record companies basically had a formula. They knew from where to where to where to where to where to where. Logistically, the bus was easy. There were short trips. It was Boston, New Haven, New York, you know, and they went down the coast, right? So. But it was also physically the closest place from London. Hmm. You know, it's an wow. hour shorter flight. Mm-hmm. It's a cheaper flight. Um, it was an, it was it was the logistical place to start and then warm up for a New York show. Yeah. So everyone started their first show ever in Boston. And if I wasn't mm-hmm. doing stills, I was working a video camera. A buddy of mine had the first. Um, uh, video cameras. He worked at the MIT Media Library, where they it was like the AV room, right? Wow. So yeah. He's in the he's in the media library. He had the first video first video cameras, and we I shot camera of the Cure's first concert in the United States at a very tiny club. No, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, the Buzzcocks first uh, concert in the United States. The Police's first concert at the Ratzkeller. Wow. So we have lots of good assets Mm -hmm. that will have an aspect. uh, There'll be a Boston tie-in, but but the the significance of the film should be global. It'll be about how, or or at least on a national level, how punk music changed the music industry. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I mean, like you said, go ahead. I was going to say it's it's not strictly punk related, but I just started watching this the new show called Vinyl on HBO. Uh, yeah, Have you yeah. seen any of that? Uh, I it's, I'm watching all of those. So I watched the CNN show, uh, the CNN show, the '70s. I watched the music episode. I watched the Brett yeah. Morgan, um, uh, Kurt Cobain uh, montage of Heck. Yeah, uh, which was brilliant. He's a brilliant director. I, I mean, I only hope I can do as good a job as he he does. Mm-hmm. He's just an amazing director. And I'm watching vinyl. Vinyl relates to it because vinyl is the setup of how the music industry became so big and crazy yeah. big and huge, and why punk had to break up the establishment. You're yeah. watching there. You're watching there the establishment being established. Yeah. And that was it's, it's awesome to see so far. Yeah. And then actually there's a one uh, speaking of punk, it's uh on Netflix. It was Alan Rickman played Hilly Crystal on that the CBGBs. Have you seen that? Uh I'm I'm gonna watch that. You with the project you have going, definitely watch it. It's awesome. Alan Rickman playing Hilly Crystal. So and what's the movie? 
Um, I forget the name. I think it's just called CBGBs. So it's something like that. It's it's on Netflix. I'm sure if you search like Alan Rickman One of my or something. Favorite photo shoots, early photo shoots, was with Alan Rickman. I can't believe you're watching That's all the people amazing. that have passed away. Yeah, uh, you're watching all the people that have passed away on the Oscars, and it's just amazing. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So tell me, you know, these last couple of questions. Uh, we're going to go into kind of the deeper territory. So, Michael, tell me, what's the biggest risk you've taken in your artistic career? Oh, I don't know. Like, that's a that's a tough one. Um, I guess doing the Naked Ambition book, figuring if people would be offended by that or not be offended by that. I mean, the concept was to do something big enough that would take the publicity and branding outside of the photography industry. I mean, with the two lighting books, I'm known by photographers. I have a, I have a nice, wonderful, I appreciate you all, my photographer fans and friends, and mm-hmm. I, I appreciate the appreciation. <laughs> I appreciate the appreciation of all of you. Mm-hmm. My, my audience is wonderful. They're good people. They're, you know... Um, um, but I, I wanted with the Naked Ambition project, I wanted to do something that punched outside of that photographer base into being a, not a household name, but a you know a bigger you know have a bigger audience. And and it was kind of cool because mm-hmm. people recognize you at places, have, being in the film, people recognize you and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so that was the biggest risk and not knowing if some people would be offended by it and some people wouldn't yeah. be offended by it. And, it. and it did go both ways. I, I secured, you know, for a number of years, I shot the biggest loser for the got milk campaign with the milk mustache. Oh, wow. <laughs> the, the and creative, that came off of that or you were, okay. So you're saying that, wow. <laughs> copy of that book, love the book, thought it was cool that I just did a big coffee table book and, you know, saw my lighting skills and, you mm-hmm. know, and I picked that up. And like you said, awesome. so it's you mentioned something that was a big risk, and at the same time, what was interesting was you you got stuff that you never would have thought that you would have gotten from that, um, gauging the subject matter. You know, yes, yes. <laughs> I think we played it right. There's almost no nudity in the book. You right. know, yeah. Um, I there's no nudity, or we're not showing adult scenes in the movie. Like mm-hmm. I think we played it mm-hmm. right. I mean, yeah. In retrospect, uh, I I I thought the culture was. In retrospect, I thought the culture was so interesting that um, um, I thought the culture was so interesting that that would sustain it. In retrospect, I wish we, um, uh, you know, found more pathos and more more uh, heartbreak or told some more personal stories uh, mm-hmm. that, that really engaged in a deep way. But it's like, you know, it's my, was my freshman effort. So. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and now that you mentioned it, that was something that when I came across, uh, you know, your, your project, Nick and ambition, I immediately thought of a bunch of real deep documentaries that I've seen on Netflix that, you know, have been since then um, that, that you said have probably tackled more of the, that material. Um, but like you said, it was, it was a risk you took and it paid off professionally. And and even though you still pissed off some people keeping to your (laughs) usual MO, you know, so what's, what would you say is your biggest fear creatively? Um, I I don't have any fears creatively. It's like, I, I mean, the only thing, 
the the only thing that happens to many of us, and you know, I, I've heard Bob Dylan talk about this. As you get older, you potentially don't take as many creative risks. That right. what you do becomes, as you develop your own style and what you do, it becomes more formulaic. So, Michael, we're gonna. Like, I know. I know. We said the last couple are pretty deep, so uh, we're gonna go next level deep here. <laughs> Name your most meaningful moment in your career thus far. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, I guess that, that breakthrough moment, like the, mm-hmm. the breakthrough moment, you know, I, I had, um, you know, I've been a photojournalist for many years and um, – had been a photojournalist almost for 15 years already. And then um, was out here in L.A. working and still working as a photojournalist for People magazine, not not doing artistic work. And then uh, I think in 93 or 94, I had two projects. I did the X-Files advertising shoot. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Where that was all over the place. And supposedly Chris hated me because I developed a look for the show. Before he did, because the advertisement huh. was out so much earlier than the, you know, and and that came from a story I did for Business Week called "The Entrepreneurs," where I traveled through the UK and the US, doing very intense, very extremely dramatic black and white portraits. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's when it's when you develop that style that's very unique that people are seeking and that it then has a purpose and is used in such a popular way like the like doing the x-files gallery you know Mm -hmm. that that 20 years ago that that was the breakthrough sort of you know the breakthrough sort of moment that took me from being you know and 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 in general you know doing newspaper photojournalism is a relatively styleless thing right yeah you know it's not like magazine it's not eugene smith and very artsy doing doing newspaper photojournalism especially back then when it was used in newsprint and didn't and how to communicate simply uh, because of the reproduction issues. Mm-hmm. So, so it was sort of breakthrough from going to capturing in a stylist way to having developed a style and uh, you know doing important things with it. Mm-hmm. Awesome, nice. So, what would you say? And this is a funny one for a lot of people. What would you say is your biggest regret in your career? Oh, I mean, you know, every time I. Every time I wasn't patient and maybe, you know, pissed the client off or, right. you know, and, and that, you know, that those, you know, we talk about that. Those are the lessons right. like the young actor, actress, the, yeah. the lessons now that people are on my shoot and they're, they walk away. And you know, when we did Will, the, the president, vice president of marketing for Sony Pictures said, this is the best shoot I've ever done. Wow. And then. Brad Smith, the director of photography and uh, from Sports Illustrated, is like, "Oh my God, this is the best shoot we've ever had. Pictures are great. I want to be your agent." He tells me. <laughs> so awesome. I mean, you take those lessons. If you don't learn from them, you're foolish. Right. If you don't learn from them, you're foolish. If you, um, uh, you know, if you do learn from them, then there were lessons that you needed, right? 
Right, right. Absolutely. All right. So one of the last deep ones we'll go into. Uh, if you couldn't share your work with anyone, would you still shoot? Yeah, of course. You know, use, I still use my iPhone even when I don't publish them. Yeah. Like, I mm-hmm. still, of course I would. I think that's the quickest answer we've had for that question. No, ever. It's, it's funny. People, people, I think, are really split down the middle. But no matter what their answer is, it's always fairly quick. You know, they sit there yeah. and say, you yeah. still like, capture it and enjoy it yourself. Like, right. you still go, oh, that's yeah. cool. That's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty. I like it's a pretty picture. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Michael, thank you for taking the no, time out today. One yep. more question. Oh, no. Yeah, we're still going. No, I just, I just kind of. Kind of you, wrap it up at the end. You of the didn't ask bit. the last question, though. I I have someone <laughs> down. Come on. Wait, be- before one? we get to that question, before we end everything, um, backtracking a lot to the whole registering and everything. Could you mm-hmm. just tell everyone that might be listening, like you know, what they should do or where they should go to learn well, more you should, about that? You you should. At, um, Yes, you own the copyright when you shoot it, but you don't have the protection under the law unless you actually register the images before they're published. That's mm-hmm. the way I do it. I register yeah. them all before they're published. So what I would recommend is mm-hmm. anyone who can come to the Palm Springs Photo Workshop, I think it's in April, where I'm – the end of April, where I'm doing a two-hour very intensive uh, workshop about the process of registration, why to awesome. register it, how to register it. We'll go through a registration. Um, we'll go through and do a registration. I'll answer everyone's question. I'll take a process that looks uh, – it, it's deceptively simple, but it's not as simple as it seems. So, yeah. But it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's mandatory. I mean, at this point now – Having registered, and because I was infringed early on, I was infringed in the early 90s, and having those registrations enables me to defend my work properly. So, awesome. All right. So, speaking of that, speaking of uh, of checking out your work and ripping it off, where where can people uh, check out your stuff and learn more about what you do? Now, some student emailed me, found an old picture of mine of Matt Frewer, the guy who played Max Headroom, Mm -hmm. and said. And said something like, you know, I want to use this image. My teacher said we should get permission. And I just said something like, you did the right thing. You know, because if you didn't, you know, <laughs> I would have sued you. <laughs> I was joking. I was joking with him. And, right. and, and, but I said, look, just because you asked, feel free. Like, right. don't push right. it. Don't put it on the web. Don't, yeah. don't pr- put it in print. But use it for your class project. Go ahead. Like, you know, that's the way people should have respect, respect yeah. images. And, that, right. That's a professional respect that, like you said, everyone needs to realize that and keep that in their head. Yeah, for sure. So, um, what was, so did I answer that question? No, no, technically. <laughs> Where where can people check out your stuff and learn more about? What oh, you go do? go Ow. to so they they yes and so don't rip it off though that was 
And if you want to use it, it can be licensed commercially. If you need to use it for, you know, for a for a homework report, just email me and let me know. Um, you you would go to michaelgreco.com. So that's M I C H A E L G R E C C O dot com. Two C's in Greco. Uh, it's not Gecko. G R E C C O. Michaelgreco.com. and um, you can check it out. We're about to do. Uh, a new website or if we get to hold this podcast for when the website's uh, about to be redone that sure would, yeah that would be even uh, awesome. even better so yeah of course so michael again thank you for taking the time out today uh yeah thanks last, so much one last question but we appreciate all the time you've given us um last but not least who's someone that you would like to hear us talk to on the show all right, so I'm glad you asked it. I'm glad you asked it because I had someone. I wrote someone down. Nick Knight. Nick, Nick Knight. Oh, that that's a great one, actually. Yeah, see the, that the same guy from that Masters. The, that same guy. Am I thinking of the same person? He's a British fashion. He's an amazing. Yes. He's British the one that, fashion right. photographer. Okay. Yeah. All right. Amazing British fashion photographer. So perfect. All right. Well. We will definitely reach out to him and and, uh, let you know. Sounds groovy. All right, guys. (laughs) All right, Mike. All right, Mike. Thanks again, man. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Bye. So, guys, if you're curious about using borrow lenses, you'll be happy to know all of their gear is tested, calibrated, reset, and cleaned after every order. They accept major credit card and most debit cards, and the majority of orders they process do not require a deposit. They love it when their gear gets to travel worldwide, but you have to promise to share some photos when you get back. Remember to visit borrowlenses.com and enter AM10 to redeem your exclusive 10% Angry Millennial discount.